I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. This is the second of two episodes where we're exploring the distributed, site-specific nature of digital labour across Science Museum Group. In the last episode, we learnt how digital labour undertaken in more administrative parts of the museum is foregrounding progressive ways of learning across the organisation. We heard how there is a strong autodidactic quality to this digital labour. It involves a kind of lifelong self-learning, a constant loop of individual and collective upskilling through interaction with online communities. So, in this second part, we turn our gaze to how distinctive, distributed digital labour and the learning opportunities that this labour generates are reaching new or previously disenfranchised communities, particularly in the Northern Museums of Science Museum Group. We will see how new forms of digital labour and modes of digital learning are responding to a need and urgency to do things differently and to speak directly with relevance to audiences, especially since the 2020 pandemic. It was in the introductory episode to The Hidden Constellation that we first heard from Chris Keady, Head of Learning at the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester. So um, I manage the three learning teams, um, including uh, the uh, events team that produces Manchester Science Festival, uh, along with our sort of varied um, annual programme of lates and um, adult activities. Um, the schools and families team, which obviously self-explanatory is the um, our fantastic programme of um, schools, workshops and activities and our family public programming and the brand new community partnerships team, which um, are committed to looking at the fantastic, um, developing a community engagement plan to really sort of ensure that communities are as represented, included, um, and um, have, have as strong access as possible to the museum collections and site. I asked Chris what the role of digital technology was in the work of his team. So I would say straight off the bat that it's been accelerated a lot recently, obviously, through um, recent events, uh, global events. So there has been, um, thinking of some tangible um, examples quite quickly, um, the science festival that we deliver every other year, uh, we we had to take online quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. I think it was about a six-week turnaround to turn it from a physical event into a, a, a digital experience. So that was um, the first thing that springs to mind in relation to how um, the challenges that that has, but the benefits that that actually afforded us in the end as well in relation to reach, in relation to having, mm-hmm. um, we were able to sort of create and, and, and curate um, programmes and talks and debates with people from all over the country um, and, and we're able to sort of broadcast that internationally as well. So our, what, what would have been 100 people in a room quickly turned into thousands of people watching a stream and, and there's a legacy for that now it's all online still people can still access it so I think an ongoing sort of challenge for us will be to think about what that looks like moving forward as we're able to sort of have those types of programs back in physical spaces then what's the hybrid version of that how do you do both how do you how do you create that authentic real experience in a space and, and have those connections with the, with each other which people have missed as well whilst also maintaining the um, the reach and the access that digital um, platforms afford. Mm. So I think that will be a big challenge for, for us um, going forward. Um, secondary to that, I think it's, um, it's probably digital skills and confidence in software um, and um, being able to, to um, upskill staff and provide training to be able to use the tools that are afforded and the how quickly things change and evolve, you know, 
even I'm sure that the software we were all trained up on to deliver the science festival is probably a new version of that and probably better versions of all the things around it so wanted to make sure there's a quality um, and making sure that people feel confident to use the tech is a big thing mm. um, yeah. but for us I suppose um, the key thing around all of this is is in not making assumptions that just because something is digital just because something yeah. is accessible online you know, we did big reaching programs through our partnership with BBC Bite Size and massive, um, you know, uh, reach through 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 programs like that during the lockdown. But there is still um, digital poverty. There's still um, the fact that, you, you know, as I said, you can't just have assume that because something is online, everybody's going to have access to it. So I think sort of making sure that there are. Um, other provisions and other um, ways of accessing and spaces that you can bring that content to through different platforms as well as just purely digital is is kind of the ongoing challenge for us at the minute. We hear from Chris how one museum team responded to the specific learning needs of Greater Manchester during the pandemic, leading them to devise a unique balance of digital resources alongside other physical resources. This is an example of distributed, context-specific digital labour happening in practice. What Chris articulates regarding digital access is an issue faced by the entire cultural and heritage sector. While the museum has come up with specific and exciting strategies to move their learning offer online during the pandemic, and these have informed practices now the pandemic is hopefully in retreat, there remains a danger that increased use of digital limits the opportunities of those who do not have much online access or access to hardware. John Stack, Director of Digital for the group, is also aware of this issue. Okay, so it's a thing that comes up, but we don't have an answer for it. Are we telling the right kinds of stories that we... Yeah. But I, yeah, I don't have an answer on the... It, it comes up and I just feel like I haven't got an answer for it. Science Museum Group is not alone in struggling to find a formalised response to digital inequality. It's a topic of discussion I've heard many times amongst the museum community over the last two years, with few concrete answers. However, there are organisations just outside of our sector that we might look to to help us figure out what strategies we could implement. I'm thinking specifically here of Good Things Foundation and the Digital Equity Institute. For Chris in Manchester, it's important to be pragmatic about the impact and reach of digital for his team. Digital is a means to an end, one of many tools for learning, rather than an end in itself. What the community in Greater Manchester wanted from the Science and Industry Museum, especially during lockdown, was non-digital learning resources. So we did a big programme called the STEM Reboot um, over the lockdown, yeah. which was a... Um, it was funded by the Greater Manchester Combined Authority and it was about kickstarting access to STEM post-lockdown for STEM educators and um, schools. Um, so we... Uh, that was what we were hearing from STEM educators and from uh, our, our audiences that it's the hands-on, the practical, the, the, the hands-on making, the skills of you know creating, manipulating materials and sort of having access to those that people really missed. So we created digital films and, and made um, a, a printed booklet that people could then, um, alongside a, a kit full of materials and equipment that people could then transform and use to, to follow make-along activities that our explainers were doing on, on digital platforms. Yeah, In these two episodes, we've been talking about distributed digital labour and how this enables new kinds of digital learning across the workforce. Here we are talking about the digital learning strategy of one museum in terms of how it meets the needs of its audiences, the conclusion being that digital isn't a silver bullet for them. I've said it before in this series, but this is all feeling a bit meta. The bottom line seems to be that, as the Science and Industry Museum seek to tackle regional inequality through widening access to STEM, digital can assist, but not always, and nor should it try. Yeah, so our current research and, and work that we're doing in the development of a community engagement plan, which is kind of our strategy that, to think about how we're going to tackle and be part of, of, of thinking and, and acting around these sort of concerns, 
we've done some initial research into this, and it, and it, you know, the stats are really quite shocking. We were finding that one in three children growing up in Manchester are living in poverty. Mm-hmm. We're finding that um, of of the 326 wards in England, um, four of the most deprived um, in the country, in the top 20, are in um, you know on our neighbours. So we are sort of thinking about okay, well, what's our role then? as a cultural organisation with um, expertise, with um, teams, with resource to be able to sort of make sure that we're um, playing our part in, in being part of, of a wider sort of conversations, wider sort of plans and wider sort of strategies to combat that. So our version of, of this is, is through working equitably. So we want all of our outreach work, all of the stuff that we're doing and taking out of the museums, all of the things that we're working on and through um, collaborative projects with our partners, um, we want that to be accessible for everyone as part of our open for all work. But we recognise that there's an, a need for us to work equitably and to put more of the resources and more of the opportunities that we are um, able to offer into specific wards, into specific boroughs, and through um, our community engagement plan, we're developing um, a, a, a bit of a mapping exercise in terms of um, what that looks like and how we're able to sort of do that and channel resources into spaces, communities, places where there'll be um, most benefit. What we found in some of the conversations we were having with teachers around the development of our resources was that people want beautiful quality, really lovely resources, images, um, image banks, um, you know, well-designed products that they can take and use in a way that that fits them best. Mm. Don't necessarily want reams and reams, booklets full of lesson plan ideas and all of this because they're at the end, the pros in that, they've got that. As museums, we have spaces, we have um, objects that are just, you know, really uh, fantastic starting points Mm -hmm. for um, STEM interrogation and STEM exploration. So a lot of our learning resources have that in mind. It's about well, here's your starting point. You know whether that be um, like the Rolls Royce downstairs or the baby computer. You've got this incredible real thing that's right in front of you, or that you can access images of that are really fantastic, and use that as a way to sort of ignite curiosity and sparks mm-hmm. imagination about well, what does that mean? Who made it? Um, why why is it made of that? Um, where's it from? How what, how did it work? And I think that's what teachers wanted more from us. And we kept that in mind in our sort of resource development for the for the STEM Reboot programme on our outreach work. It's that we're just providing the tools and, and the sparks of imagination and jumping off points for people to be able to explore collaboratively. So digital plays a role in working equitably, but significantly it's a measured and thoughtful incorporation of technology rather than a wholesale adoption. What I'm getting at here is that the museum workforce has agency when it comes to how it chooses to incorporate digital in its activities and offer. Perhaps what is at the bottom of distributed digital labour is really just digital literacy, the ability to understand and evaluate what kinds of tools and platforms might be appropriate for the thing that you want to achieve and the ability to recognise when these aren't the right approach. This is what we hear from Chris. I think we were aware when we were, um, you know, the, the height of the pandemic was first announced. We, we kind of fought the, 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 the urge initially to just throw everything at it in terms of all of our things. Well, let's all just drop everything and let's all just make loads of content, content, content. So it was about, yes, there was a place for us to be part of that. But we, we had to recognise that there were other things happening and other places were doing things too. So what, what was the unique bit that we could offer in, in terms of our expertise and our sort of staff time and what have you to be able to support it and be part of a wider um, level of support for schools? Mm-hmm. And it, it, throwing everything that we've ever made and ever produced onto something, onto a website, wasn't the answer for us. It was about bigger scale projects or about... Um, uh, as I said earlier, really highlighting the, the existing resources and reframing them in a way that showed mm. how they could be um, used in, in this new way. Mm. This perspective on the importance of digital in the museum was shared by Sally MacDonald, the museum's director. 
it's a means to an end so you use it when it's appropriate to use it and I've seen it used so badly in museums that um you know when quite clearly something physical be so much better um but I think for me it's about um it is about that audience out there that is invisible and we're not talking about but they are there people who can never get to us and Mm -hmm. who can um who can never um or who can't easily access our site even you know if they might you know once in a lifetime they might be able to come but but they won't otherwise so it's like what are we telling them what we're providing for them about that's even remotely comparable to what people get when they visit the site and what you experienced how could we do how could we how could we replicate some of that um for people who can't get to us because it is a it is a, a a site of global importance and we're not really sharing that properly um mm. and then for the people who can get to us how do we enhance that visit by um by what we give them beforehand what we give them afterwards and what dimension we add to their their visit so that um so that they can perhaps more easily visualize what things were like on the site or what they might be like in future um but so for me it's 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 all about um doing that within the museum environment not going somewhere else into a little room and seeing a video about about the history of the about the history of the site it's a it's about how do you how do you um extend the museum environment um intellectually and physically by a really, really smart use of augmented reality, probably. So we're thinking about industry in our museum, obviously. So we're thinking about industries, we're thinking about revolutions, we're thinking about how people have had ideas that have changed the world. So thinking about what the role of digital is from that context is probably really, really exciting. So I have a wonderful vision of this place in the future from a learning perspective, where you are immersed in um, centuries of innovation, of stories of, of, of people that have achieved things in the past, mm. people that have created things, people that have um, had ideas and, and pursued them and it, and it inspires you to think about what your part of that in the future might be or could be and I think technology allows you to, um, to enhance that story, it allows you practically to really um, increase the rate of which that you're able to ha- have representation to see yourself as part of literally on the walls. I think it's really powerful thinking about if you're walking around a space or a gallery um, or you're engaging with a programme, a piece of programming, seeing yourself represented is a huge part of, of that uh, in terms of from a science capital approach. Um, and I think technology and digital representation is, is, is included in that and a great way to do it. Like the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester, the next museum in the group I want to focus on has similarly harnessed its own unique, context-specific approach to doing digital work. These activities, in turn, have led to several left-field autodidactic opportunities for its workforce and volunteers. Locomotion is a railway museum in Shildon, County Durham. The sister museum to the National Railway Museum in York It was opened in 2004 by then Prime Minister and local MP Tony Blair. Like the National Railway Museum, Locomotion is working hard towards Vision 2025, the £55 million redevelopment and transformation project, which will lead to the two sites becoming the world's railway museum. I'm excited for us to go to Locomotion next, because the slightly anarchist, quietly revolutionary spirit I found there was very inspiring when it comes to thinking about the potential of digital labour to work towards equality in both museums and in society. First, some context. In November 1875, local daily newspaper The Northern Echo described Shildon, the home of locomotion, as one of the ugliest places on the Earth's fair surface. It continued... It was once a swamp, the malaria from which laid many of its early inhabitants low with fever. It is now a hideous conjury of houses, growing like fungus on either side of a network of rails. A huge colliery rears its ungainly head close to the rails, and the noises of its working cease not forever. Engines are plying about with restless activity, 
like spiders running along the threads of their nets seeking for hapless flies. There is a ceaseless rattle of wagon wheels, and snorting and puffing of the engines fills the air with dismal noises. Sarah Price, Head of Locomotion, provides us with a more up-to-date take of the relevance of locomotion for Shildon. For me, it's the connection between our objects and place. Because I know I say this all the time, but if you don't understand why Shildon is important in the railway story, you would not put a National Railway Museum in Shildon. Because it's in, it's difficult to get to. It's a really small town in, you know, South Durham. Why would you put something here? As soon as you understand, kind of the role that Shildon played, you know, right back for like nearly two centuries, you go. There is no more natural place to put a railway museum. Digital though allows us to tell that story properly with a really wide reach. Whereas before, people people come here mainly that a lot of our visitors come locally because it's the museum that's on their doorstep. We think that's really important. We want that community. We want to be part of our community. It's not about saying we're, we're national, therefore we don't want to engage. That's not it at all. Um, but what we need to do is push out and say, Shildon is important. The world needs to know about this because we're telling a global story here. We are not a Shildon like local history museum at all we are a proper national museum telling a national story with international reach um, and we've, we've, I think we've probably always struggled with that but if we, if we harness the power of, digitally, of digital properly we can actually people will they'll, it, pe- more people will get it will get why, why we're important and, and then that then feeds back into placemaking um, as well because I think placemaking to it, because I know museums talk about placemaking and their role in it, and to me it's always about they make it a place. And actually, for us, I think it's we we draw from our place and add to our place. Um, so it's a slightly different version of placemaking. You know, like if you if you look at York and York Central, that's very much about placemaking. You know, the museum will be absolutely at the hub of York Central. It'll be incredible to have a cultural heart to that development. Um, but to us, what we're doing here to me is placemaking in a different kind of way. So locomotion is has traditionally been called the sister museum to the National Railway Museum, and that's certainly where our governance is. But the way we are now pitching it is National National Railway Museum is one museum, two sites so in terms of it being the kind of the balance it's much more of equal I think than it it used to be and particularly when we have Building 2 which opens next year it's, um, you know, in terms of the the number of vehicles we'll have um, on display at both sites will be equal-ish we'll be slightly ahead Vision 2025 is the bicentenary of the Stockton and Darlington Railway, which was the first public railway to use steam locomotives and is therefore regarded as the first modern railway. Opening in September 1825, the Stockton and Darlington line first connected coal mines and children to Darlington. Here's Dr Sophie Vora, Research Associate at National Railway Museum, talking about how this commemorative moment formed part of her PhD studies. So yeah, my um, my collaborative PhD was between the University of York, the history department there, and the National Railway Museum, and it looked at the commemorative cultures of uh, the British railway industry, um, a very long span of time from literally the beginning of railways to now. I also looked at the bicentenary of the Stockton and Darlington Railway up in the northeast, which feeds very much into what locomotion mm-hmm. is pushing for at the moment. Um, and it's interesting to see their their role within that. But essentially, and I think I liked this one of the most out of the chapters, is it's almost like, what is the purpose of heritage anymore? Like, if you're going to put money into celebrating something, you have to have a an output, at least one, if not more. And particularly for the bicentenary um, there is a there's a lot that has been put on the kind of stakes of um, how do you make a disenfranchised deindustrialized area feel like it's worth something again and I think that somebody at one point in one of my interviews had said like you know the eye of the world will be on Shildon in 2025 and this tiny little town 
in the northeast of England mm. that has just, you know, been kind of battered and bruised by by an industry that is no longer there for them. It isn't. It, it, it's it's kind of ghost is, but it is not itself. It's suddenly been revived to to give it life and. I'm excited to see how that works and I hope that it does what it's supposed to. Let's go back to Sarah at the museum, outlining the specific role of digital for the museum's vision. Okay, so potential of digital, I think it's really huge. In fact, we're already trying things, or going to be trying things. Um, but for us, that's a re- it's a really good way of trialling what we can do and the appetite of our audiences to engage digitally um, as well. And what we want to do, we're trying to future-proof the building as well. So we're trying to make sure that we put in enough things like Wi-Fi points and data points. So even if we don't have the resource when we open, we're able to put it in at a later date um, as well. Because, you know, we do have a digital poverty kind of issue for some of our kind of immediate locality. But that we know that's going to change. So we need to make sure that, you know, we've always got our eye um, on that as well. So I think, you know, we are there with it. And then I don't know whether, Simon, you want to talk about the work that we've done with the iPads, because I think that's another way we do digital engagement. Um, yeah, so um, one of the things that we've um, been doing recently is um, using um, iPads to show items of detection that people can't normally access. Um, and it's kind of two kind of really good things about that is um, it's, it's an easy technology for our current volunteers mm-hmm. to understand. Um, after the pandemic, they're all used to using iPads for talking to grandkids and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's something that they can pick up easily. Um, obviously, it's highlighting bits of reflection to tell stories that we don't want to get a chance to talk about. And it's also really good for us to show that we're more open for all. Although it's not an ideal like-for-like experience for someone with mobility issues, if we can show them images of what is in a cab which they can't get into and show them pictures, talk about it and demonstrate things, it kind of breaks down those barriers a little bit. Um, and it's been really useful here. Our volunteers love it. And I believe mm. that York is now trialling mm-hmm. that as well yeah, as a way to be more open for. And so I'm- That's Simon Walsh, duty officer for volunteers at Locomotion. What I love about this example that Simon provides is how it shows the experimental let's try it and see nature of digital labour within this pocket of Science Museum Group. Digital technology, through the act of putting the inside of train cabs on iPads, becomes a solution not only for audiences who cannot access the inside of these vehicles, but also enhances the storytelling capabilities of volunteers. Again, as with the previous episode, what we find is a kind of connected learning in action where technology is used to resolve the needs of the museum, its audiences and its volunteer community while tangible learning based on trial and error takes place. I asked Simon and Sarah if this was an example of when being a smaller museum in a larger museum group enables more flexibility and agility than if they were a bigger museum. Yeah, it's 100% one of those. Um, so... Our first kind of um, example of this was a group thing. Um, we had the Tim Peak space capsule, and that came with Samsung tablets because Samsung was sponsoring it. And it was a really good way of showing inside the capsule without people getting too close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were very much sort of in mind that we can use our first Tim Peak, Tim Peak space capsule. Why can't we do that for Dalek or Black Five or other items of the capsule that people can't get in? Um, then I believe we had some budget and mm-hmm. we bought some iPads kind of just before. Yeah, so there was, a, there was a bit of money left in the accessibility budget. Okay. Um, and so, you know, people said, well, what, is there anything that you would like to do? And I was like, well, actually, we really want to kind of make use of iPad technology because we're always really conscious that one of the most popular things that we do for visitors is the um, cab access Um, but you've got to be able to climb steps to be able to do it. So we were always aware that that was a, you know, we were offering a kind of a a lesser offer really for visitors with with mobility issues. So we were like, okay, get those. So we managed to get, was it six iPads, I think? Um, And then it was about, well, let's look at what content we can put on it. But we'd already... um, kind of been thinking about it not just for iPads but just generally about using 360 degree photography so we were able to quite quickly drop that content onto the iPads as well as developing new content as well yes so like basically we're able to turn that around quicker than maybe the museums would have been able to Mm -hmm. because 
we'd already had a couple of things in, in the process mm-hmm. and we're able to kind of jump on ideas and rise them quickly uh-huh. because basically we can just turn around and be like, do you want to do this? <laughs> Simon is referring here to Eileen Atkins, engagement and programming manager, who we will hear from in a moment. Back to Sarah. And I think I think it is the it's the kind of there's no silos in in the way that that we work in comms is much easier because yeah we all sit together or we're all talking to each other all the all the time um, but also we've got really good links already with conservation so asking to get into these spaces it wasn't we we didn't have to go through like convoluted processes we could just have that conversation direct and I think the way that we work as a as a single team really helped us um, be able to bring all the right people into the right space at the right time to have the right conversation. I think the, the pandemic kind of helped a little bit as it well. Did, yeah. Because it restricted what we could do in person. So we couldn't open everything up straight away because of social distancing. So it kind of forced us to kind of find the solution and the solution was that we'd already written on, which was the solution that we're finding for mm-hmm. the open for all. Like, actually, mm-hmm. if it's good, this is a good activity for people with mobility issues, it's something that actually will help everyone understand the collection better. And that's kind of important. That's not just kind of us to say, oh, this is for mobility issues. This is actually something to be useful for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once more, there is a sense that the museum is actively supporting connected learning through its shared purpose as custodian of a globally significant collection, its focus on action through assisting change in the local area, and its openly networked infrastructure, enabled by, as Sarah says, the fact that they are working physically close together. Um, when we reopened, um, we set up a, we brought our, back our volunteers to be what we called visitor ambassadors, and okay. their kind of main goal was just to be friendly and welcoming, because um, people came back into the museum and... Um, after the pandemic, they were unsure of the space, um, unsure about what it was like to be outside. Um, but you know, we're a very trusted organisation, people found it safe here, um, and we wanted the volunteers to be a big part of that, to be the, you know, they had masks on, but you know, the smiley, friendly face to things. Um, and because they couldn't do their traditional rules of opening cabs and doing tours because of the restrictions, rather than the tablets, it gave them a talking point to start those conversations, to make people feel mortal and feel like they were back in an easy. Well, the thing is, is the volunteers can fall into more than just the two categories of do digital, don't do digital. There's those who can do digital and choose not to because they've done it all their careers and all their lives. Um, Those who don't have the ability and facilities to do digital and those who um, who are quite happy, you know, the the silver safe kind of they'll do anything. Um, So, yes, that middle group, we totally can help, um, you know, by providing them either with training, confidence and facilities to do stuff. So, um, for example, we do um, um, kind of uh, training on how to be safe online, you know, um, um, keeping your information safe while doing stuff, which obviously is important for us because if they're using mm-hmm. our technology, we want to keep the organisation safe. But translates to their everyday life where mm-hmm. more things nowadays are going online, you know, their banking, their, their bills and stuff like that. So if we can teach them how to stay safe while using our stuff, it also translates to their own lives. Mm-hmm. So, so there is something. I mean, we can't overstate, we can't change the world. Programs, but we can tip things and help things move along and get a little bit better at these things. Um. This question of digital skills and what the role of the museum is in enabling more formal digital learning for its staff and volunteers also came up when I was speaking with Chris in Manchester. During the creation of Manchester Science Festival, it was at a time when museums weren't allowed to be open, which even saying that now just sounds really weird, and that was only a few months ago. Um, but we had to create a um, a, uh, a pop-up temporary sort of studio. So we, we were able to do that in one of our conference spaces. And even at the time, we were aware that, you know, conference spaces are really hard to find. <laughs> and it was just really hard to sort of get into. So we didn't have that problem at, at that time. So we were able to sort of occupy this space and create a, um, a, a pop-up um, studio with our gallery maintenance team. Um, to, that where we had, um, you know, laptops, um, kits, cameras, microphones, um, software that where we could do um, live streams from and what have you, and mix um, different screens from different people working from all over the country. Um, but this was brand new stuff, and and, and the teams, you know, even a, a month before, a couple of months before, would never have have 
had to do this or never would have thought this would be something they were doing. So we were, you know, really working on new territory here. And it was just amazing. Came to sort of um, support and see the delivery of one of the live events to just see the team grabbing microphones, literally calling the shots, cut to camera, whatever. And it was just really lovely to see the confidence of the team grow to be able to sort of own and take on these sort of digital events. And um, it just happened overnight, really, you know. So we went from doing practice runs with us as friends and um, pretending to be speakers and, and asking really silly questions just so we could test microphone levels to being able to sort of do um, talks with um, with Brian Eno and you know, really sort of internationally significant um, uh, speakers. And, and it was just to be able to, 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 to sort of help provide that um, space was just was just really great and something we'll definitely take forward. As at Locomotion, the Science and Industry Museum are similarly aware of their contribution to digital skills development inside as well as outside the museum within their wider networks and communities. So I think in terms of digital skills, there's two strands. There's, there's the staff digital skills. You know, we need to be able to build it into staff training, to staff support, and especially in inductions. Mm-hmm. We're going out for new event producers currently, and absolutely they'll be trained on how to use um, vMix and all these sorts of software, the software that we were able to sort of do our mixing on. It, it, it's it's up to the urgency of that and the expectation that we'll have of people to be able to adapt a little bit to, to that, with support of course, but it is part of our wheelhouse now of how we, we might mm-hmm. do things digitally exclusively in the future, so we want people to, to feel confident to do that. Mm-hmm. But equally, from a sort of Greater Manchester perspective, we speaking with GMC, Greater Manchester Combined Authority and from colleagues you know, in, in, in education, there will be an increased need on our um, thinking about talent pipelines and inspiring people to, to, to pursue careers in the future. Digital is only ever going to be more and more relevant and more and more um, necessary as part of a, a job. Mm-hmm. So through our programmes, through our maths and computing um, provisions through our exploration of the collections through those sorts of lenses like I was saying earlier from that sort of access and um, point of view we we have a role to play in in building confidence in those areas. Later in the Hidden Constellation, we'll be homing in on how the Science Museum Group is helping build greater digital confidence across some of its volunteer cohorts, and that digital skills building often starts with volunteer communities. This is modelling new forms of collective digital labour for the Museum Group, digital labour which promotes a quality of access to the museum above all else. But back to the team at Locomotion. Here's Eileen talking about how younger volunteers have pioneered new ways of doing things through their digital activities. Our younger volunteers as well through the youth team, they've been, been doing some um, blogs and they did a bit on Takeover Day and stuff with Twitter and things, so we could develop that more. Yeah, um, and you know, like, especially for young people coming through, um, so um, Kitty does the Instagram mm-hmm. feed, and so she's one of our volunteers. Mm-hmm. Does Instagram feed from the university because she's down at Birmingham. Um, oh yeah. So, um, yeah. so you know, like that's kind of very much transferable. Yeah. CV kind of yeah. specific activities where um, it's stuff that you know, a lot of young people just do on their day-to-day lives. But to put it on a CV, you need to be able to say, "Oh, well, I've done it as a, as a, a career environment type of thing," mm-hmm. and by volunteering and doing that. The thing yeah. that you can use to yeah. build these things. And, and when we were working with the young people for the Heritage Open Days Locomotion Mates event, like Kitty <laughs> and, and other people who are involved in that, um, the fact that they were already quite IT literate meant that they were very comfortable having meetings online and things. So we, we managed to move events like that along mm. despite having the issues of not being able to meet in person. And one of the things we did earlier on was that. A program with the, the Zambezi Sunrise Trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they wanted to connect uh, young people in Zambia uh, to work for this because there was a sister train. So our, one of our trains in the collection here used to work in the sawmills in South Africa, and um, the the young people in Zambia got on their train while 
we were going to live stream young people in this country um, working with them around the museum. Um, so we should have had four school groups here at the museum and then we ended up having to change it all. So we, we had the four schools from different parts of North East all having to zoom in to meet with Gareth and I here on Teams and then we held our computer up and took them on a virtual tour we physically moved around the museum with them and answered their questions. So we're answering questions from Africa and from all the schools around the North East. And then the, the kids all got to say little messages to each other across the across the globe and across the schools. A lot of the northeast schools hadn't met with each other either. So there's one there was one from Northumberland and one from Cramlington and a couple from Durham as well. Uh, and it was, it was really successful. We were so nervous about all these different live streams all happening at the same time. And then the young people in Zambia actually got on their train. We saw it moving and we saw them on the train as it was setting off. And they were singing and dancing. It was, it was, it was just so we just breathing a sigh of relief that all the technology had worked <laughs> at the time. But it's a nice example of that we just all had to keep adapting and adapting and adapting yeah. so we could still find a way for it to happen. And those kind of experiences, like that was forced because of COVID, but do you think do you think it's kind of unleashed new possibilities now for locomotion generally? Yeah, I think it's given everybody more confidence about using that kind of online conferencing facility to do that kind of thing. We haven't then gone on to do other projects with schools from other parts of the world or even this country base. I think yeah, I think there are, and I think just generally the way that your platform can be bigger because of of digital. And what we're finding now without the the uh, talks program is that people are asking, can you live stream them? Can you record them? Can you put them out on on YouTube as well? And these are from a quite a traditional audience. So I think just the the pandemic has shifted the way that our audiences think about how they want to engage digitally so it, it's not just they want a digital experience on site they're happy to have a digital contact with us as well as because I think for for us it's mainly as well as not instead of yeah. um, but I think that's really interesting so we need to um, I mean the, the only reason we haven't done anything like that is the we we need to get the internet restored down. <laughs> There's no network connectivity down at that end of site yet, but that is coming in the next few weeks. Um, so we can we can start looking at that um, and doing it just again because you know it, it helps with that being open for all as well. You know, you can, there are very many reasons why you might not be able to make it to a museum, <laughs> and it's not just about mobility or or health. You know, for some of our audiences, it can be about affordability. It can be about caring responsibilities. You know, there's there's so many more ways that we can we can use digital in a really really simple way. Um, it doesn't have to be super techy um, to do it. And it's I think we've always just got to be mindful about how we how we exploit these opportunities. I think it definitely diversifies the people, our audiences, but mm-hmm. also in terms of our volunteers and who can volunteer with us as well, because mm-hmm. uh, the, the youth team now wants to go ahead with a hybrid meeting thing, so every other meeting we're going to meet online in the early evening, mm-hmm. and every other meeting we'll meet in the museum, mm-hmm. and it just means that they then don't have to commit to coming here every couple of months, mm-hmm. but they can still be getting on with stuff and can still meet as a group as well. Mm-hmm. We definitely kind of create some diversifying offer them, but also kind of our core volunteers. I think it gives them more opportunities. And the idea is that someone who could be just really passionate about trains, they live in North America, yeah. they could volunteer for us yeah. mm-hmm. if we had like the right offer. And Do some research. Exactly. There's no like even traditional roles could be focused online, so we don't have to necessarily go out and find all singing or dancing digital roles. Well, actually, digital just become part of our repertoire of opportunities, mm-hmm. and I think that'll be kind of sector standards. So if people stop talking about digital, because that's just something that we yeah. do. Yeah, like, you could do this from home mm-hmm. if you want. Because the tools are there, so we have you know, volunteers have SMG email addresses now, so they, they can access the, the information that they have and can mm-hmm. communicate with us more freely. Um, so yeah, I think it'll just become part of our repertoire mm-hmm. in certain ways. But I say like. Because of that flexibility it offers, it helps us diversify, especially for a younger audience. Yeah. 
It was from talking so openly with Sarah, Simon and Eileen that I first understood the truly specific, distributed and positively disruptive ways that digital labour can be enacted in different sites across Science Museum Group. The fact that locomotion has a smaller workforce than the other museums, a workforce which is by default close-knit, alongside the fact that their vision and mission is so clearly linked to their commitment to Shildon as a place with a rich but difficult history, means that sporadic, exciting and variable methods of learning with digital are possible. Yeah, so, like, so we are more kind of that anarchist approach. We're probably more willing to, to allow people to express themselves. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's only what I've experienced. That's um, being braced. Like, so sometimes I think we do things and then the group say, oh yes, that would be good. And, and we get yeah. quite celebrated in that we've done that. And then mm. maybe some, sometimes I get colleagues from other museums going, well, how did, how did you set that up? And they yeah. like, I might have done it before we had everything yes, in well, place. Like, 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 like a new kind of directive will come down, a bit of framework. And yeah. like, oh, you can start doing this now. And like, mm. where are we doing that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think small team and a fairly flat team. There's yeah. Sarah, there's me, you, Pat, yeah. and then there's everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. It allows for that. That mm. kind of, someone, if, if one of our volunteers or one of our staff members has an idea, you mm-hmm. don't have to go far for it to be a senior management level. No, they know all of the bigger museums, you'd have to go through supervisors, yeah. the airline managers, the department heads, yeah. up to, like several steps. Yeah. Mm. Well, but here, like, a volunteer could come over here and be like, I reckon we should do this. And I'd be like, that sounds like a good idea. Let's yeah. see what we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My thanks to the team at Locomotion and at the Science and Industry Museum for taking the time to help me explore these ideas in more detail. Before I conclude, I want to jump once more to my conversation with Lopa Patel MBE, member of the Board of Science Museum Group, who provides another valuable perspective as a trustee for multiple large organisations, both government, tech and non-profit, as well as founder of Diversity UK, on why distributed digital labour in museums might not be as prevalent as it ought to be when we look to the digital confidence of those who sit at board level. I mean, I would say it's uh, because we've done a lot of work at the Science Museum. Uh, again, we, I feel we're a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. It is very much misunderstood and undervalued but the problem is that all organizations have the same problem that a they've got to pitch to the board Mm. b the board's got to be sufficiently convinced to agree to those proposals and plans and then c the board's got to be confident that they have the right oversight over those things but it's just such a shortage of board level skills in digital and it's absolutely everywhere i mean the mm-hmm. pandemic has highlighted it and audit firms everybody's just talking about that all the time but it mm-hmm. is a whole spectrum of things everything from cyber security through to payments and financial yeah. uh regularity through to delivery of the organization's missions through mm-hmm. to people management it's everywhere and yet governance reviews seem to completely there's no measure, there's no metric. You know, how, how digitally illiterate is your board? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, boards need to have digital courage. Yeah. And that is the cumulative effect of the digital courage of individual board members who are brought yeah. in. Most people say to me, oh, you know, we're brought in to stabilise the ship. You know, how, how do you make sure that you've got digital courage as a board? What do you need from us to support you? What sort of uh, metrics are you going to use? How do you bring about a shift, you know, in thinking? And that's really what we're talking about. My thanks to Lopa for this insight. It didn't feel right to talk about distributed digital labour in different parts of the museum without also considering how things play out at a governance level. As Lopa says, much more research is needed on the digital literacy of museum boards and how this informs the digital confidence and courage of the whole workforce. In these two episodes, I hope I've provided a picture of some of the distributed digital labour taking place across Science Museum Group and how intrinsically linked it is to a new spirit of self-learning. We heard how self-learning with technology is still not motivated in some parts of the museum, such as curatorial, 
but how it is very prevalent in newer job roles, such as data analytics. In these new parts of the museum, good work is forged through collective learning and through participation in online communities. We heard how digital autodidacticism generally occurs when people from different departments put their heads together to create something new or try something out. Digital learning seems to happen when the emphasis is on the outcome rather than the process. We heard how distributed digital labour can be valuable, not just for the skills development of museum people, but also for the participation of audiences. It can rebalance the value of different job roles in the museum, as we heard in the last episode with the increased value attributed to social media work in Bradford because of the Twitter exhibitions. On the one hand, distributed digital labour is successful when it involves a balanced approach to doing digital. Chris in Manchester helped to see that new digital activity is also a test of digital literacy, of knowing when something is and when it isn't a good fit for the needs of the museum and its communities. On the other, we learnt from the team at Locomotion how distributed digital labour and the self-learning it generates is particularly successful when the stakes are relatively low, usually because resource is limited, and so experimentation and trial and error are as good an approach as any. The benefits of this way of doing digital are manifold. So how do we sum up distributed digital labour at Science Museum Group? I think it might be impossible to try. What can be said with clarity is that context-specific, thoughtful pockets of digital labour are instilling a new spirit of learning in the museum, one which disrupts traditional understandings of museums as solely a dialogue between a curator and their audience. Here's to more. Thank you for listening. See you here next time at The Hidden Constellation, where we'll be reflecting on the impact of legacy, human, social and technological, on digital labour at Science Museum Group. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe-Tracy, Reefa Thorpe-Tracy, Ben Murray and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe-Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Fine.